across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour with an hour of food and drink. I'm Matt Bentman and here are Alan Alder and Sue Bailey with some of what's coming up on today's programme. A Cambridge resident shares her memories of food in Cambridge going back to the 1930s. Jenny Jeffries talks about her two books that celebrate Britain's fishing and farming communities and their favourite recipes. We visit Cambridge's Urban Winery, where vintner Chris Wilson has just released, and sold out of, his first wine. There are more to come later on in the summer, though. And we've got plenty of food and drink news, and at the end of the programme, a selection of jobs in the food and drink industry, in and around Cambridge. Let's begin with where much of our food comes from, Britain's farming and fishing communities. Jenny Jeffries has written about them both, and I spoke with her during the week. What got you into writing your first book, For the Love of the Land, and now your second book, For the Love of Sea? Well, both books were really born out of my shameful ignorance about food provenance and where food comes from. The For the Love of the Land was really inspired by my husband, John, who I remember after having just met him, I witnessed my first ever harvest. And I remember seeing so much passion and hard work that really goes into producing just a bowl of cereal or a loaf of bread for our kitchen tables. And I really wanted to share his farming story and lots of other people's farming stories in hopefully an accessible, straightforward, entertaining and informative way such as a cookbook. So your husband is a farmer and has been for a number of years? He has. He took over the farm when he was 21, so he's been farming for quite some time. And he's an arable farmer here in South Cambridgeshire. He's been really passionate about it and very hardworking. And so you thought, what better way to celebrate, first of all, the farm and the farming life? Definitely. I really wanted to share his story and I was very ashamed at my sort of ignorance about where our food comes from having brought up in a town and it was a real shock to the system and a real learning curve moving into the country for something a new way of life and I really wanted to share and celebrate all the farmers from all over the British Isles. Your book is both a cookery book but also a sort of little bit of a life story of some of the different farmers. Yes indeed. And similarly for your love of the sea is it the same type of thing? It is. I asked about 40 passionate people from within the farming community and the British seafood community to contribute both a recipe and a story about what's really passionate about them and to really illustrate the heritage, tradition and culture within both communities. How did you actually decide who to choose because there are so many good farming producers and also, thank goodness, some very good fishermen. But 
that's a massive task. It is, and I really enjoyed the whole process of the whole research and continuity of it. And I first of all made a list of the amazing produce that we have on our island nation and worked from there in a geographical process because I wanted to give the opportunity to give a voice to all these farmers and fishermen from all over the UK to really sort of voice their story and to showcase their wonderful produce. And also you've got some lovely photographs in your books that show the fun, if you like, and the pleasure, but also the quality of British produce. I think Mezze Publishing, who published both books, did a fantastic, important job with the books and produced them really brilliantly with some fantastic food photographers, such as Paul Gregory, who did the f- both covers of both For the Love of the Land and For the Love of the Sea, along with Simon Burt, Tim Green, Matt Crowder and Claire Irwin. They all combined such beautiful imagery that really showcases the evocative words that the contributors gave to them. And are these your recipes or are these the contributors' favourite recipes? So these are all the contributors' favourite recipes that pretty much nine times out of ten really showcases their produce that they specialise in, from meat, dairy, lavender, chilies, wine, lots of different examples in there. And I worked with a fantastic editor at Mezze Publishing called Katie Fisher who really helped me and helped each other to obtain the stories and to edit them and to work with the copy involved and she did a great job with that as well. And I have to give special thanks to um, Minette Batters, the president of the National Farmers Union, who came on board at such an early process of the whole project. And she very kindly wrote the foreword to For the Love of the Land. And she added so much credibility throughout the whole process to help to persuade the farmers to contribute. So having written your first book, did you find it easier to write the second book or just as hard? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was a different process. I mean, it was very similar in most ways. But I did have the added bonus of having the first book which I could then refer the fishermen and all the other contributors to so they could see the quality of the work and the whole process backing it up. So I was very fortunate in the fact that a lot of people were really enthusiastic about it and eventually word got out about the book and people started asking me to be in it which was amazing and extremely flattering and just a huge privilege. Do people get copies of the book to sell themselves or is it available in bookshops? What's the process for purchasing your beautiful books? Oh, thank you. So they are available to purchase from All Good Bookshop as well, Berwish Larder, where we are at the moment. Their farm shop sell them as well. So there's lots of farm shops all over the UK who are selling them, so that's brilliant. And also, I gather you are being shortlisted for a book prize, is that correct? That is correct, which is really exciting. For the Love of the Land has just been shortlisted for Best Cookbook in the Great British Food Awards 2021 with such illustrious companies such as Mary Berry, Jamie Oliver, James Martin and Pinch of Nom. Very humbling, very exciting. Urge everyone to vote for the love of the land. Also, you are involved with Love British Food. That's right. I've just recently made a food hero with Love British Food. They are a fantastic organisation that really flies the flag for sustainability and British food and produce in our country. That's right. In fact, I'm a Love British Food ambassador, which is why I think I first heard of you. So that's really, really nice. And I think this is what is so important, that we have got so much beautiful British seasonal produce and also amazing fish all around the British Isles that we really need to make use of it and with asparagus season starting here at Burwash which is where I'm interviewing you this is such a lovely thing 
for us to get involved in, isn't it? Definitely. I think it's so important to buy local, buy sustainably, buy seasonally and above all to buy British, especially at this time with COVID-19 and Brexit related issues. I think it's really our duty and responsibility to really support our British farmers and people in the British seafood community now more than ever before. We are so lucky to have such a luxury choice of amazing produce in our country and I think that's to be shared and celebrated. Before we finish, what would you say are your sort of two favourite recipes in your books for Love of the Sea and Love of the Land? I have lots of favourites and they all become really special to me. Some that really jump out are the baked devil crabs which have been kindly contributed by the Royal National Lifeboat Institution in For the Love of the Sea and also Lavender Shortbread by Castle Farm in Kent in For the Love of the Land but all of the recipes are amazing. If I can cook them, anybody can cook them. They're very, very accessible and very straightforward. There's a couple of more challenging recipes for the more enthusiastic and experienced home cook but more often than not they're really sort of family favourite recipes that you can cook up with your children or with your partners for family and friends and especially now when we can eat inside and really enjoy our food they're really lovely books and I'm very proud of them they look absolutely beautiful if you want to know more about Jenny you've also got a Facebook and Twitter and Instagram apart from your website haven't you we're very prolific on the social media handles please do have a look and if you do cook up anything at home please do take photos of them and share them we'd love to see them and we're very excited to share all the recipes and to see what people cook up at home i think i will be having a go myself thank you very much jenny <laughs> as well as buying jenny jeffrey's book in bookshops and farm shops you can get them signed and if you want gift wrap through her website jennyjeffries.co.uk and speaking of fish if you haven't been to the fish butchery at number two mill road yet you really should Every Saturday they have lobster, cooked or uncooked for £25. They have lots of fresh fish, seafood and items like the best taramasalata I've ever eaten. Takeaway lunches and all sorts of things. Terrifically good and all from Britain, not Australia. At least, not yet. Time for our first news break now. And in June there's going to be a midsummer celebration at the Flourish Farm near Linton. Owner Calixta will show you around and describe what's being grown. Then Katie Moore of the Allotment Bakery will provide an afternoon picnic that includes ingredients from the farm, and Susanna Wonsall of Meadows will be on hand to replenish your cups with drinks. The date is the 20th of June, and there are three tours at 11am, 12.15pm and 1.30pm. The cost is £50 per head, and you can book via the link in Flourish's Instagram account, where you can find more details. There's a competition being run by Parker's Tavern and Rutherford's Punting. On the 3rd of June, Tristan Welsh will cook for you, if you win the competition, and your guest on a punt, so you can eat away as you drift down the cam. The winner will be announced on the 1st of June, and you can enter via the Parker's Tavern Instagram page, where you'll find all the details. Brewboard in Harston has achieved its crowdfunding goal of 30000 to make changes to its taproom in Harston and to open a venue in Cambridge. Congratulations to them, they did it with two days to spare and were supported by 348 people. Café Foy on Cambridge's Quayside is holding South African food pop-ups every Wednesday and Thursday evening with Chef Donkey. The café will be open until 10pm on those nights. Uh, and a couple of congratulations first to Tim Haywood, finalist in the Guild of Food Writers Awards for his writing in the Financial Times Weekend magazine. 
and also to Meadows in Eltersley Avenue, which last weekend celebrated its second birthday, a great shop whose range of excellent produce just keeps growing. And we'll have more news later. But for now, for a few minutes, let's step back from what's new on the Cambridge food scene and hear how things used to be. A bit of food history. Alan spoke with Cambridge resident Valerie Bennett, now in her 80s, about her food memories, starting off with her dog's favourite treat. I think my first food memory was we had a dog called Mike, who was a... I'm not quite sure what he was, maybe a bit mixed. But the most exciting thing about him was that he would go down, he would walk to the end of the road and wait for the bus, catch it into town from along Huntington Road. He would catch it into town and then he would wait outside this big Sainsbury's, which in those days was facing Market Street on the left-hand side. He would wait and they would give him a bone and then he would bring it back. He didn't catch the bus back, he would walk back. <laughs> so he must have been taken on a they bus all... in his life. and He must have been earlier by my, <laughs> by my father, I suppose. Much later, we met someone who had been one of the conductors on this bus. And he said, oh, Mike, and remembered him quite well. <laughs> this must have been in, because I was born in 1934, so it must have been 1937. Um. Anyway, at one point, he didn't come back, so we all got terribly anxious and never knew what happened to him. He obviously hadn't got back. Oh, so he never came back at all then? One, it finally, yes. It wasn't just as he was late home. Oh, no, he wasn't late <laughs> home. <laughs> I'm afraid he died, I presume, or got run over and nobody told us, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That was very sad. And the other memory I have of when we lived in Richmond Road was one day there was this sound of somebody selling something in the street, so we all rushed out, and it was... A muffin man with muffins selling muffins on his head and they were hot you could sort of smell the heat you know as you walked walked along and, and the smell was just wonderful but I nobody else has remembered it have I have I actually missed you know have I made this up or not or was it just a special thing for a May the first or something like that but we did eat them I can remember the taste I'd never had a muffin before it was delicious <laughs> well there was a song have you seen the muffin man yes. so it obviously did Yes. Did happen. What about what about food shops in town? Anything interesting there? Well, by that time, I was we'd moved to Milton Road. We'd been given a council house um, in Milton Road for the, just before Arbury, and um, every Saturday, my mother would go into town and we would buy certain things from the market. My mother would buy vegetables from the vegetable people and. I remember particularly her buying something called curd cheese. It was cottage cheese made by someone in Cottenham. It was always lovely, delicious, absolutely delicious. And you you bought a piece of it. It was on straw and you had the straw as well. So it sort of leaked all the way home. (laughs) But it was delicious. I suppose the markets sold quite a lot of food in those days. It did, but it didn't sell the kind of very posh food that it does now, like... Mm. Um, olive oil. I mean, olive oil you still had to go and buy in boots, a very small medicinal piece. That was the only way you ever bought olive oil. So were there any specialist food shops then? Well, there was Matthew's around the corner in Trinity Street, a very big shop. Its clientele was mainly the university. You, if you walked past it, you, had, you knew you were getting to Matthew's before you got there because the smell of 
coffee which was actually roasting in the window as you went past. It was just the most magnificent. And whereabouts on Trinity Street? Oh, it was where Heffers is now. Uh, oh, it's right. So did it have the same layout, that sort of yes, galleried layout? That it Heffers did. It was had. quite a big layout. You didn't go downstairs. It was just the one. But it went back a long way. There were all the different um, departments. What, like a cheese? Like a, a cheese department. And they and used to cook their own ham which, again, is, was really unusual in those days. And you could smell that as you were you walking on the road that. as oh, well, I should think. Fantastic. It was a really good shop. And oh, well, and that was Matthews. And going back to the market, Michael Matthews, who sold oh. teas and coffees... It must have been a grandson or something, yes. Yeah, from, yeah, yes. from, from that family. And, of course, his tea and coffee business has been bought by Emerald Foods on the market oh, now. So it? that all links back to that original uh, Matthews. So they, what, they closed down or they moved? They, they or must what? have sold it to Heifers at some point. I remember being very sad about that. Mm. And I can't quite remember when it was, 60s probably. Uh, what about eating out? Were there many restaurants? Well, we didn't eat out as children and there weren't many restaurants at all. But when I was 19, I went to art school in near Bath, Corsham Court. And as, as life would have it, in the first Christmas after I'd been, I came home and got a job working for the post office, as everybody did in those days, and, and met my first serious boyfriend, who was at St John's. And uh, so he and I would go to all the curry shops because he was born in Pune. There was a very good curry house opposite St John's and we used to go there. There were various other curry shops. When would that have been? What decade would that have been? I I went to college in 1952, so early 50s. So there were a lot of curry houses in Cambridge in the 50s? There were quite a lot, quite sort of, yes. I mean, mainly just for students, basically. And what about more more British food? Was there anything...? There was a little delicatessen almost next door to Raj, called Adams, I think. And at the back of it was a little restaurant in that little wee path. Oh, where the cheese shop is All Saints Passage. All Saints Passage. And um, that was run by... You had to go down steps. And that was run by Lucy, his Mr Adams's wife. And she would cook real French food, so everybody was would queue up, because she was very small and very voluble and would teach you how to make an omelette so we all learned how to make <laughs> omelettes the french way yeah in the war there was a british restaurant which was first of all on the corner of pedicure which then existed as an absolutely lovely road and there were little weenie restaurants all the way along there for students mm. and they were foreign often but uh, but in and amongst there was a british restaurant but the british restaurant was from the government i mean you know where we could eat for the right amount of money, you couldn't pay more than two and sixpence. You weren't allowed to. So that's twelve and a half pence. Oh, uh, yes. In, uh, in <laughs> current money, <laughs> probably is. Yeah. Um, and we used to go there, but my mother thought it was the greatest street ever. She didn't have to cook, but we all these. I hated it because it was horrible English food, really horrible. And you, you got a slash of this and a slash of that, and you had to eat it up. So I had a terrible time. So, so what was it? Sort of meat and two veg meat sort of thing? Veg. Or overcooked sprouts? And a pudding. And with custard. And custard <laughs> with lots and lots of lumps in it. Oh, I can't tell you how awful it was. And then it moved around the corner to Jesus Lane, to the Hawks Club. 
it was there for a bit. It wasn't the food wasn't any better, but it was nicer to go there. Right, and so was it popular this this well, place? Well, yeah, I think you had to wait. Yes, it was quite popular because you got so people would queue for cheap food, lumpy. Yes. Custard. <laughs> well, you were going there to eat rather than going there to for delight. Yeah. <laughs> At that point, of course, the Americans had moved into Cambridge. It meant that in the town centre you suddenly got things that you wouldn't get. And one of them was a milk bar in which is now Paper Chase. I think it's still there, I'm not sure. Yeah, Paper Chase is, yes. Yeah. yeah, but what does a milk bar? Oh, well, it sounds like you just get a glass of milk or something. Well, you sat on a proper seat, high seat, at a bar and you could order milkshakes. You know, I can remember having a strawberry milkshake and us. And it was the whole thing was you sat there in your, because I was by then 15 or 16, so you sat there in your homemade dress, (laughs) new look, your homemade new look dress, feeling fantastic. (laughs) Feeling very sophisticated. Feeling very sophisticated, yes. And thanks to Val Bennett, how innocent those times seem now, and how odd to think that the present day will seem innocent in a few years' time. Part two of Valerie's recollections will be in the next edition of Flavour on the 5th of June. I'm free. I'm free. Here's where we bring you details of free food available now in and around Cambridge. The information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app, which is free to download. Here's a quick rundown of what's been available locally on the Olio app. Nina, near the Botanic Garden, had a near full box of green tea to give away. Varsha on Hills Road had a bottle of sour cream topping. Amber near Queen Edith's Way was giving away homemade chicken curry with pilau rice. And Carol had pots from pret including egg and spinach, birch and muesli, and acai and almond butter bowl, as well as plenty of sandwiches, baguettes, toasties, as in tuna melts or ham, cheese and mustard, and even smashed avocado open sandwiches. All of this food, it's given away for free. You simply need to have the Oleo app installed on your smartphone. It works out where you are, and it tells you how far away this food is from you. And another free app called Too Good To Go has unsold food from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. Uh, Rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home instead of it being binned at the end of the day's trading. On to our second news break now. And it's a much better time for beer drinkers, with pubs open on the inside as well as outdoors. But also it's the Cambridge Beer Festival starting on the 24th of May. The festival isn't happening at its usual place in Jesus Green, but in local pubs. For example, the Haymakers has, on Monday, a cider tasting, which is live at the pub and also streamed online. The Portland has running from the 25th to the end of the month a large selection of beers and cider. The Flying Pig has a selection of local beers and local bands each night. You can find the details on Camera's social media. La Latina Bastorante has managed to get its bus up to the food court in the Grafton Centre. That can't have been easy. And it's open until 9pm nightly to eat in. Or you can order via foodstuff. The long-awaited public consultation on changes to the market has begun. You can see the details on the City Council's website and on social media too. The consultation ends on the 8th of July. 
Opening soon at 57 Hills Road, on the corner with Station Road, is The Wine Rooms, a wine shop and bar with a modern seasonal menu. There'll also be tastings and private dining. They have job vacancies at the moment. Details in our jobs section at the end of the programme. Yeah, and speaking of wine, we'll be back after the break with a report from Cambridge's City Winery, which has just bottled and sold out of its first wine. But there's more to come. We'll also be finding out about a tea company based in Cambridge, which is using its profits on reforestation work. See you in two minutes after the break. 105. Cambridge 105 Radio. Kickstart your weekend. Saturday Breakfast with Matt Webb. I'm here every weekend to get you moving. I have the latest from the Cambridge News Desk on the hour and half hour. Problems on the A14, Newmarket Road or Mill Road? Well, if there are, you'll be the first to know in the travel. There's a full sports roundup at 8.30, including what's happening at Cambridge United and our other local clubs. Plus a look at the Saturday papers and local online publications at 10 to 9. That's Saturday Breakfast with me, Matt Webb, this weekend from 8. If you're like me, you've got a family and a business. And you want to protect what's most important when the chips are down. With Woodfine Solicitors, that's exactly what happens. I got a bespoke legal service from a friendly expert team. They really listened to what was going on and tailored their recommendations to my situation, which was, well, that's another story. Anyway, the best thing was that it all happened online. A few simple clicks and I had my quote. That freed up time to focus on everything else. Get the help you need when you need it most. Visit woodfights.co.uk or call Cambridge 411421. Woodfights, cutting through the red tape. What does your home need to feel complete? Gap Home Improvements have been helping customers give their properties that curb appeal for over 20 years. You've seen our vans in your area providing dedicated support to families across Cambridgeshire. Windows, doors, garden rooms, conservatories and warm roofs. We offer free quotations in a pressure-free environment. In person, on the phone or by video call, our consultants will help you realise your property's true potential. Call Cambridge 914-567 or visit gaphomeimprovements.co.uk today. Welcome back to Flavour, and on Thursday morning I found myself in a windmill I didn't know existed in Arbury, off Victoria Road in fact. I was visiting Chris Wilson's winery, called Gutter and Stars, and yes, there is wine being produced in the city of Cambridge, and I couldn't wait to find out all about it. Chris, setting up a, a winery can't be cheap, I and mean, it must be time-consuming, so what's your motivation? It, it, grapes are not cheap um, and some of the equipment isn't that cheap we've we found this spot here in the basement of the windmill which um, the landlords would could not really use for much so we've got this space which isn't very big but it's perfect for what we're doing in terms of cost try and keep things as low as possible the grapes are the, the biggest cost and the barrels and the tanks but they'll they'll be used next year and the year after and the year after that so it's it's just a case of, of, of not not spending any money that we haven't got yet um, the motivation is to, is to do something interesting and different and, and try and make some wine in the city of Cambridge. Never been done before. I'm sure the Romans did it, of course. Never been done before in recent times. There are urban wineries in London, Gateshead. So why not Cambridge? And it's a really interesting way of making wine. I don't have the overheads of a vineyard or the worry of uh, having to farm. Um, I'm, I negotiate a price for the grapes with the growers and, and make the wine. The grapes come from an hour, an hour away in, in the Crouch Valley in Essex. So 
it's pretty local. I know wineries in, in France and South Africa and elsewhere where the the the, 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 the the grapes owned by the winery come from further away to their, to their actual production facility. So it's as local as it can be. So since you're a, a wine writer as well, writing for Decanter magazine, for example, you're putting your head above the parapet rather, aren't you? Um, somewhat, yeah, um, but that's, that's not a reason not to do it. I mean, I, I, I completely respect my peers who are wine writers and, and their opinions, and I'm, I'm, some, some of them have tasted the wine I've produced, and I've had some really good feedback. Others uh, haven't yet, and I'd be very keen to, to hear what they say. And, you know, I don't want anyone to pull any punches. But at the same time, I think I suspect a lot of wine writers would love to to get their hands dirty and, and 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 do some of this as well. And if anyone wants to come and help out, I'll, I'll be more than willing to show them the ropes. So what wines are you producing this year? So from the 2020 um, harvest, which we harvested in September and October last year, I'm producing three wines. A Bacchus, a white grape, grown predominantly in, in the UK and, and in sort of Northern Europe where it's, it's a cool climate grape essentially. So it, it ripens well and it can be harvested relatively early. Um, so that wine's been made, bottled and sold. It's all gone. There were 400 bottles of that. The next wine off, off, the, uh, off, the, off the lot is a Pinot Noir, which is a still Pinot Noir wine from grapes again from Essex. That's uh, currently in French oak barrel maturing and it will be bottled some point this summer. Finally, I have a Chardonnay, uh, which again is currently maturing in, in oak barrels in the cellar and that will, that will be out in the autumn time. I've not seen a red English Pinot Noir before. Are you breaking new ground? <laughs> no, not really. So you speak, speak to people at Gusbourne and, uh, and Chapel Down and some of the bigger wineries down in the southeast of England. They've, they've been making some really decent still red wines for years now. And yes, it's, it can be a dicey game because you need the sugars, you need the ripeness in the fruit. We had an exceptional vintage last year in terms of uh, ripeness, potential alcohol, sugars in the fruit. So I was really, really happy to get hold of some really ripe Pinot Noir to make this this wine. It's coming in at about 12% alcohol, all natural. There's been nothing added to to, to increase the alcohol at all. So it's, it's balanced and it's fruity and juicy and I'm really happy with it. I think there's a real future for it, for, for, for English red wines. Um, if the seasons carry on as they have been. Yeah, which this year actually isn't showing much much sign of so far. Yes, um, it's been a pretty bleak few months. Having said that, I was in the vineyard yesterday in Essex where I'm, I'm sourcing fruit again for, for, for this year's vintage and it was hot down there. It was 11 degrees according to the, the thermometer in my car when I drove down there. But in the vineyard, it must have been 15, 16 degrees. When the sun comes out in the Crouch Valley, it's, it's a real pocket. The vines were looking healthy, buds have broken, the leaves are growing. What we can hope for and pray for is just a, you know sustained sunshine and warm weather over the next few months. They're probably three to four weeks behind where they were last year or where, where you'd expect them to be. But that doesn't mean that the season's over. It doesn't mean that, that, that we can predict what the fruit will be like in September and October. Um, all we need is a decent summer, lots of growing degree days, bit of sunshine and, you know, touch wood, some dry, warm weather in the autumn so we can leave the fruit to hang a bit longer and, and accumulate sugars. The, the um, putting in, in oak barrels, why, say for Pinot, for example, why did you choose to use oak barrels? 
Uh, well, it's, it's the traditional method of, of maturing wine, and I've fermented the white wines in oak because it adds a different character to the wine. For, let's look at Bacchus, for example. It's quite a aromatic variety, um, much like Riesling. It's it's um, if, if you ferment, uh, mature it in stainless steel, you can keep hold of all those aromatics and, and that sort of elderflower character and um, the sort of hedgerow grassiness, which, which is attractive. I, I personally wanted to go down a slightly different route and try and add a bit more of a savoury textured um, note to the wine. So by, by fermenting and maturing in oak, I, it was in constant contact with small amounts of oxygen, which changed the character of the wine and also uh, blew off some of those more sort of blousy um, hedgerow characters uh, and for me uh, accentuated some of the more sort of tropical fruit in there. You're talking about having events and tastings, are they scheduled? Yeah, or? I mean at the moment I have nothing planned however I would love to, ha- to open the doors at some point this summer and have um, a tasting in here of my wines and maybe some other other wines other English wines or other say Chardonnays or Pinots from around the world and do a sort of comparative tasting I'd like to do regular things like that maybe 10 12 people a little bit of education a lot of fun um, a chance to actually taste in a winery in in the center of Cambridge I think it would be a really interesting thing for customers uh, to come and see and where I am in Chesterton Mill, the, the, the site's being redeveloped, it's almost finished, the landscaping's being done at the moment. So this will be a really interesting space for people to come and see. So potentially some sort of pop-up wine tasting event, if I could maybe facilitate some outdoor space at some point, would be an interesting thing to do as well. Sure. And how do people get hold of it? Are you taking orders or do people just turn up? Um, so the Bacchus is sold out, uh, which I'm, I'm thrilled about. Uh, the next wine, Pinot Noir. Keep an eye on the website and my social media feeds, which are at Gutter Stars Wine. Um, and I'll be giving info on when, when things are out and how much there is. And people can certainly pre-order or um, give me a call, send me an email and we'll make, we'll make a plan. A plan well worth making. Now, after that interview, I mentioned to Chris that I'd always wanted to try a wine that's been oaked and compare it to the same wine that's been kept in a different vessel, for example, stainless steel. And to my joy, he had his Pinot Noir in both types of container, so I had my chance. Now, this is a bit self-indulgent, maybe, but it produced some interesting information, as well as giving me the chance to try the Pinot Noir, one of my favourites. And I can tell you that it's deliciously Pinot Noir-ish. So this is some Pinot that's been matured in... So they were both fermented using the same yeasts and in the same vessels. And then um, the barrel was filled up, which is 227 litres. And uh, the tank got the rest of it. There wasn't enough for a second barrel. So the rest, which is about 120 litres, ended up in a stainless tank. So barrel to the left. Okay. to the right do you sample this wine regularly then to see how it's coming on yeah all the time yeah so it's the barrel on the left barrels on the left yeah well to me that one tastes I suppose live, more lively more sharp yeah than that one but they're both jolly you'd nice. expect the barrel one to be a bit rounder mm. and less tannic because of the oxygen 
I think the tank tastes a bit spicier, a bit more peppery. Um, but that's just that's the way I, I see it. Obviously, we all taste things differently. Mm, that's interesting. Because I sometimes think that I guess if a wine is over oaked, it it loses some of its character. Mm. It's sometimes it smooths the oaking, it smooths yeah. out the. Well, these are old barrels, so we're not getting any oak character. So we're not getting any of that vanilla or um, coconut or uh, any of that sort of overly um, well oak character which you might get in a, in a Rioja for example what you're getting in is micro oxygenation essentially so the flow through the staves of small amounts of oxygen in and out of the wine which can help to you know smooth off some of the tannins and make the acid acidity a bit less um, present uh, but it does also mute some of the other characters as well so it's it's a sort of balancing act mm. and those two white those two tanks the tank of the barrel will be blended before bottling so yeah it'll be it'll be a combo yeah great well thanks very much chris that's no Chris will announce when his next two wines are ready via social media and i shall be keeping a close lookout And that music signals time for the Twitter news. We have to pre-record our programmes now because of limited access to the Cambridge 105 radio studios as a result of the virus, so we can't bring you the latest tweets. However, we hope to be back in the studios soon. But in the meantime, we can tell you that you can follow Flavour on Twitter, where we are at Flavour105. And we're on Instagram too, also as Flavour105. <laughs> Tea is the most popular hot drink in Britain. That's hardly earth-shattering news, is it? But websites like Statistica or The Grocer show that most of us tend to have two to five teas a day, and tea drinkers have expressed in polls that they tend to care how their tea is sourced and the sustainability of it, and this is especially true amongst younger tea drinkers who want to support products that play their part. Well, this week I met a man who runs a tea business that does exactly that. Your tea, Mr. Buchanan. Tea? Ah, oh, that's different, bless your heart. Ah, love tea. And this is a feature about reforest tea. It's run by Alistair. He loves tea too. In fact, he says... A cup of tea that does something good at the same time, people like it even more. Something good, like saving the world. And when you say this tea is planting trees and protecting forests, giving people opportunities, it's actually a good business choice for cafes. Because people like the tea, but people come back and try it again because it has a social good built into it. Reforest Tea has a mission. We come from the perspective of wanting to plant trees and conserve forestry. To raise as much money and as much awareness as we could for the projects that we were supporting through the Reforest organisation. So let's put 100% of the profits from the Reforest Tea business to plant trees and protect forests. Every nation in creation has its favorite drink. France is famous for its wine, its beer in Germany, and England loves its tea. I drink about a dozen cups of tea a day, and I really enjoy my product. You know, you've got to sell something you like, right? 
I mean, presently we have nine blends of tea. Mm. Black teas, green teas, we've got naturally caffeine-free teas. So there's something for everybody. You know, we've got a really nice green tea blend, which is green tea with lemongrass and ginger. It's really good for rehydration. And the reforest oil grey has just little pieces of lime leaf in it. Mm. It's connected to the forest. Like all our blends have some kind of connection to trees and the forest. If I had a forest mint, it's got a little bit of eucalyptus in there. Reforest oil grey, then it's got a little bit of lime leaf in there. And that lime leaf enhances the flavour of the bergamot flavouring that Earl Grey has. Mm. So it gives it a little bit more citrusy in, and that just gives it the edge over other blends. Our forest chamomile blend. Because all our blends are connected to the forest, we've put a little bit of Tilia cordata, which is linden blossom. It has a very complementary flavour to chamomile, and that's very, very relaxing, it's very soothing, it's, it's great for bedtime. Our forest mint, so it's not a pure peppermint, it's got some eucalyptus in there, really gives it a much broader spectrum taste. And then we also do a, a rooibos and apple, a naturally caffeine-free infusion, but behaves a lot of ways like a black tea. So you can put milk with it, you can drink it like an alternative to an English breakfast. And I drink that every day. Reforest tea has also picked up some accolades along the way. Yeah, so the Great Taste Awards, we entered for the first time last year and we won three awards for our English breakfast, Earl Grey, and an award for our forest fruits. And it's the most recognised of the industry awards in food and beverages. People recognise that and they trust in that award. Alistair's goal with the business is to preserve the forests, protect them before they get cut down. We can't just assume that we can go back and recreate these, these forest environments that are unique. We supported the SOS Orangutan project with our reforest chai at the end of last year. And when you look at the impact of oil palms on the forests in Sumatra and Borneo, they've just decimated the forest. And people can choose not to use oil palms, but it's very difficult. But we've got to appreciate that once we lose those very complicated tropical forests that are home to orangutans, that are home to very, very unique species, they're gone and we're going to be left with a monoculture of oil palms. Mm. And the orangutan is so closely related to humans that it's something we've really got to bring to the forefront of our thoughts. Hopefully, through drinking a cup of our reforest tea, people can think about forests and forest conservation, all the complicated messages around that. How it's not just a tree. It preserves forest-dwelling species like the butterflies, the orangutans, If you go onto the website reforest.org, you'll see all of their current projects that they're supporting. I say they. If you buy the tea, it's your money that's going into these projects. You're protecting them. And one such project is the Forest for Monarch Butterflies. When you think of the monarch butterfly, you don't immediately think of forest conservation. Mm. But actually, the monarch butterfly migrates from Mexico to the United States each year. And it's threatened because of habitat loss. Every time they return back to the forest in Michoacan in Mexico, there are fewer trees for them to hibernate on. So the Monarch Butterfly Foundation works to protect the forest, replant by employing local people, educating people. And obviously when you protect a habitat, you protect more than just the butterflies themselves. Mm. We can't just fund a project for a year. And we've got to look at forestry as a long-term investment. And if we just give it money for one year, then next year the trees have to be tended to, they have to be... If we put fencing around an area, it needs to be maintained for the long term for those trees to, to grow over decades. Yeah. 
So we need to make sure that there's a funding model there that, that looks to the future. And the Monarch Butterfly Fund, take a look online on our website, reforest.org. It's a really good example of where reforestation is an integral part of the bigger picture. It's a lot of work selling tea to make the money to put into projects. When we make the money, we want to spend that very carefully, very thoughtfully. So if we just went to a big project that's run by, I know, a governmental organisation and said, you know, here's our £500 that we have to spend on reforestation work, it would just disappear. It might go into to bureaucracy or funding, something that's not directly going into the ground. Mm. But if we go to a project which is working in India and say, here's our £500, which we've worked very hard for, and people have, have enjoyed our teas with the intention that the profits from that tea will be spent very carefully, then those are the projects that we want to look at. And those are the projects where we want to spend our money. And those are the projects that have the most impact per dollar. Alistair finds people around the globe who are dedicated to preserving their forests, their environments. They know how fragile they are. They know how much time, energy, effort, money it takes to keep them safe and sustainable. Far better than somebody coming in from another country and saying, right, this is what we're going to do. A good example here is Armando. Do you know what? He's a genuine guy. He's just spent 23 years running a project called Chico Mendes Reforestation Project in the central highlands of Guatemala. And he's not done it for financial gain. He's doing it because the forests around his home are being cut down. It's meant to be a reserve, but it's not being policed very well. And really, those forests provide a resource for the villagers. They provide fresh water. The water comes from the rain, which is captured by the forest and percolates through the forest and comes out as springs. Mm. And he realised this: the forest would be chopped down and very quickly those rainwaters would not be collected and the rainwater wouldn't become a source of drinking water for the village. And what do you do then? Mm. You know, you're in the central highlands of Guatemala. What do you do when you don't have any water? You've either got to have it brought in and pay for it or you've got to move. These are people who are feeling the effects of climatic change and trying to do something about it. So when you go to Armando's house, he's got a tree nursery in his backyard. So he grows saplings from seed which he collects in the forest. And they transplants those seedlings into little bags. And then he takes those by hand. Often they carry them up into the forest and plant them by hand. And it doesn't cost much to run. You know, he's running a budget of just a few thousand dollars a year and doing loads of really good tree planting. And if we can give him a bit of money to help him, he's going to do even more. When you compare that to you know, these governmental projects which are spending millions of dollars, mm. you think, you know what, what is the cost per tree that Armando's paying is, is just cents? And you look at the big, big projects and they're planting eucalyptus or whatever in Africa, which are non-native, you say, what's the cost of tree there? It's probably quite a lot. So that would be a good example of a grassroots project. He is doing it himself. Mm. He's educating his children, he's educating local children, he takes in school kids to, to volunteer, 
and he gets on the local news there. So, you know, he gets his reward, but usually paid entries. Yeah. We're going to support the people that are carrying trees up to the mountain, that are, are walking around making sure that illegal timber's not been taken. Hopefully by allowing people to be part of that through selling our teas, everybody can be part of this movement. But yeah, Armando's a great guy. He's not good at doing the self-promotion. He's a farmer that's turned from farming into forest conservation. He's a genuine guy, but he does need some help. That's where we can fit in. Through a collaboration with the Honorway Trust, we managed to facilitate a grant for Armando for the past five years. Encountering different people in different environments, different countries, which is really interesting. Yeah. But that's why we're not saying we're going to start our own projects because it's much better to say, like Armando, he's been doing it for 23 years. Mm. And he says, do you know what? We need funds and with more funds, we'll do more good. So it's funds limited. So the more funds you can give grassroots projects and they spend their money really carefully. Like Armando will think very carefully before he buys something for the project mm. because his funds are limited. You know, he's very, very focused on how can he get the most out of each dollar. Yeah. If those are our dollars that we're giving him, then that's great. You know, we're on board with that. And usually the grassroots projects have a lot more value per dollar. They have a lot more impact. If you're a local person and you've planted a tree, firstly, you know the environment. You know how to plant the tree, where to plant the tree, what tree to plant. Uh, international organizations that go and spend international money in projects around the world they often turn up for a month, sow the seeds, and then disappear. And as I said earlier, you know, tree projects need support for long term because trees grow for the long term. You can't just turn up, plant a seed, and expect it to be there in 10 years' time because that seed has to be maintained through that 10 years. So we really have to look for the long term when we, when we choose projects and we look at you know, funding. The reason for reforest tea to exist is to plant trees and conserve forests. That's why we started it, not to make us rich. We want to be tree millionaires, not dollar millionaires. That was Alistair and his business Reforest Tea. And you can find his award-winning teas across Cambridge at the Iris Cafe in Newnham College. You can find it at Pembroke College, at Arjuna Whole Foods on Mill Road, the Cambridge Cookery School on Hills Road, Stir on Chesterton Road, Bridges Cafe on Bridge Street, and the Flock Cafe in Barton. You can, of course, buy the teas directly via his website, reforest.org, and they're available to order on Amazon as well. You can follow Reforest and its forestry projects on Instagram at reforest underscore tea, and on Facebook at Reforest Tea, that's all one word. And I'd just like to mention how nice his green tea is. Now, I don't like green tea, I never have, but his one is called Green Tea with Lemongrass and Ginger, and oh, is it good stuff. The teas, they're all made in England, and he's got this tea blender who is famous in the world of tea blending. Several decades in the business, he is the Mr. Miyagi of tea blending. And what you get in these teas, the way the flavours work together so well and no one component overpowers the other, mmm, special. (laughs) 
That's green onions signalling the start of our job section. Trumpington Food Hub needs a coordinator working 10 hours a week. The job lasts until December 2021 and it entails coordinating and developing the work of the Trumpington Food Hub, ensuring that food, the Food Hub continues to help as many people as possible and reaching out to potential supporters and growers. You would work from home, but you will have access to the office in the Trumpington Pavilion. The pay is £10.83 an hour and the closing date is Tuesday the 25th of May. To get an application form or discuss the post, contact Jackie Coville on 07437 922631 or email jcoville at gmail.com The sea tree in Mill Road requires a chef. If you can help them get one, there's a reward of a meal for two, including wines or beers. Email there at theseatree.co.uk. Scots All Day in Mill Road also needs chefs. Contact them via social media or just pop in. Downing College requires a sous chef. Details are on the Downing College website. The pay is £32,445 per annum for 37 hours per week. Hot Numbers in Shepworth is looking for a pizza chef. You must be able to work early mornings from 6.30 and be available at weekends too. Pay is from £9.25 per hour and details are on the Hot Numbers website. Gonville and Keys College needs a kitchen porter. The closing date is Monday for this one, but there are others and there's more time available to apply for them. They are a demi-chef de partie, waiters and a wine cellar assistant. Full details are on the Gunville and Keys website from which you can apply. Prana in Mill Road needs a tandoori chef. Pop in and ask for details. The Red Bull in Barton Road needs a chef. Again, you can pop in and inquire. Provenance needs a front of house for 45 hours a week spread over Wednesdays to Sundays. Email ask at provenancekitchen.com. Midsummer House is looking for a sommelier. Send your CV to restaurant.manager at midsummerhouse.co.uk. Steak and Honour need full-time and part-time staff. You can send your CV to hello at steakandhonour.co.uk. The Wine Rooms, soon to open on the corner of Hills Road and Station Road, need a chef with a passion for food and wine, a junior chef and waiting staff. Email hello at thewinerooms.cambridge.co.uk And that about wraps up our programme for today. We are here on alternate Saturdays at 12pm, we're repeated on Mondays at 6pm and we'll also be available via podcast early next week. Coming up on Cambridge 105 today at 1 o'clock is Ollie Slack with Sports Special. And later tonight, I'll reappear on Christophoru's show Rock of Ages, talking about the pretty things. That's from 8 until 10pm. But that's all from us. We'll be back with lots more food and drink news, jobs and features on the 5th of June. But until then, goodbye. And thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.